21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. Uh, I'm very happy to have my friend uh, Dean Dudley on the show today. I've been trying to get Dean on the show for quite some time, and our schedules meshed well together, and we were able to work this time out. So, uh, Dean, thanks for being on the show, and uh, just say hi to the audience. Hi, everyone. And um, yes, uh, Andy managed to coerce me onto the show, so I. I, I hope I don't bore you all too much. I'll try to. I've heard, I'm just, just, just hearing the quality of your other guests, I'm feeling quite intimidated, but that's fine. Well, you know what? It'll be a, a good conversation for those, just to give people a bit of backstory. So Dean and I first connected on Twitter, I guess it was would probably be three years ago now, Dean? Yeah, it's been a while, yeah. Yeah, and then we we met in person in Thailand, Dean's family. My family met in person, so we were able to uh, spend some time together there. And since that time, we actually met a few months ago in Dubai again in person. So uh, we've kind of de- developed a, a friendship aside from the the work we do and the, the collaboration um, that we take part in. But uh, I guess I just wanted to start the show. Obviously, this is about physical education but I just wanted to give people a little more backstory into who you are and the work that you do. And maybe you can just begin because you've got a little bit of an interesting story, but maybe you can just begin by sharing what you did before you became an educator, because many people know you as a researcher and they might assume that you've been in uh, education throughout your entire career. So why don't you give people a bit of backstory into that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think uh, education as a as a profession is something I actually stumbled into. I, um, I I was from a military background. My um, my father was a soldier, and I was a bit of an well, I was an army brat, the eldest of three boys. And um, if you look at our family history, um, uh, we we did, Dudleys do one of two things: we fight wars or we dig coal. Um, the digging coal didn't really appeal to me, but the um, the fighting part kind of did. Um, and so much so is, I mean, we can trace our family lineage to to every conflict that the uh, the Empire has fought in since Waterloo. So nice. it was interesting, actually. I was in Edinburgh for a conference last year, and they actually had one of my ancestors' war diaries from Waterloo on display for the um, 250th anniversary, which was quite novel and got invited in to view it. It was lovely. But having said that, yeah, so... Unlike my father, who was a um, who was a senior non-commissioned officer, I, I did officer training straight out of high school. So I attended for the non-Australian listeners the Australian version of say West Point or Sandhurst. Yeah. Um, it's called Duntroon, the Royal Military College Duntroon here in Australia, and um, I did my officer training there. And for all intents and purposes, was going to spend a long, happy and hopefully safe career <laughs> in the military during the, studying the profession of arms. Um, unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. I um, had a fairly severe accident um, during a training exercise um, that prevented me from continuing doing the sort of work I was doing in the military at the time. How old were you um, at the time? And how, old were you, how old were you at that time? I was uh, uh, 20. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, it, it, I, I had a um, – the Army was actually – given that I, I couldn't do that kind of work anymore, they were prepared to offer me a, a job with a, in a different classification or go to university and study, and I took the latter uh, option. And, uh, and because I was so sick – and so on. Well, um, after my accident, I um, I studied um, applied science. So I studied the health sciences, 
more out of out of interest to knowing what was how my body was responding to this this incident and how I could overcome it and you know it was really a learning exercise for me to to get well again so I could return to the kind of duty that I was doing and uh, I came to the end of my three years finished my degree and the military was actually paying for a four-year degree which was lucky uh, I was lucky and so I had 12 months left to study full-time so I did a diploma of education because you know what they say you know you can always fall back on teaching <laughs> <laughs> and uh it, it, it a weird a weird sort of thing transpired is um one of the things I did is when I was in the army I uh, when, when I was at the college we actually acted as a um, uh, a mentor for army cadet units in high schools and it was one of the things I really enjoyed um, during my training was working with um, was working with uh, these these high school kids um, in their army cadet program and then when I went did my debate I just really connected with teaching um, specifically I, I taught physical education I also taught a few other subjects I taught health and I taught geography and history and I actually did study military history while I was at the college and um, was basically offered a full-time teaching position after my first teaching practicum okay. <laughs> and um, and it came to the end of my degree and I had the choice to go back and to the army or give this teaching gig a shot and I chose the latter and physical activity was it always a big part of your life growing up yeah I, yeah i mean being a being a military family um but also i think my, my father was quite an athlete he was a he was a runner and he was a swimmer and he was a very good footballer um i had my cousin played for australia played football for australia and um yeah, basically our whole family revolved around doing some sort of activity whatever it was whether it be in the water or on the land so for me growing up uh, I had a strong connection with football but that you know not just soccer but all sorts of football I ended up playing uh, you know several variations of the game not just through high school but also into my university years um yeah and I always had always had always had an uh, attraction to the ocean uh, dad dad was big on letting us swim as kids not not in you know swimming pools but you know we lived near a lake and and near rivers and so forth and, and the ocean so we spent a lot of time a lot of time swimming in natural waterways as children and me especially I always felt a real connection to that yeah and I think that's something you pass on to your daughters I know you spend a lot of time with your daughters uh, down at the ocean as well uh, at the surf club but uh, when did you um, really become passionate about, I guess, uh, pursuing physical education more long-term in your career? Um, well, I met my wife at the first school I taught at. So my wife and I met um, in my first teaching appointment. And uh, I, I learned, I found out pretty Early on, I was teaching in a Catholic school at the time. Um, I'd been offered a job in the public system, and I was the product of public school education. And I've always been a big advocate for public education, but um, a, a really good opportunity came up in the Catholic school. But I learned very early on in my teaching career in the Catholic system that because I didn't hold any particular strong religious beliefs, I, I consider myself an atheist. Mm -hmm. Um, and was never raised in a fairly, any sort of religious um, household, um, that my career, regardless of how smart or how hard I worked, was always going to be restrained based upon something that I wasn't born into. Um, I took a, I took, I'm not sure you're aware of this, but I actually took a, a, a leave of absence um, after a few years of teaching and I went and worked in a number of other sectors. I worked for Surf Lifesaving as a, and wrote a lot of books for them, nice. a lot of training um, manuals uh, for that organisation. And then I went back and I started studying again and went and did my master's by research, did a dissertation looking at some of the issues that I saw as a teacher, which was mainly around the disengagement of adolescent girls from school sport curricula. And whilst I was doing that dissertation, I also worked in the Australian Sports Medicine Federation and I wrote some training 
materials for them and yeah. for their community education programs. And when I finished my masters or masters by research, I um, was offered a PhD position, and I took that up. And uh, at the same time, I was offered that. I was offered a full time academic role at Charles Sturt University. I had a fabulous boss there who's named, uh, by the name of Frank Marino, former PE teacher turned physiologist. Uh-huh. Just an amazing man and um, and a, a great guy to work for. And um, He gave me my first real gig in academia and showed me what it meant to be. He really epitomised this, this celebration of scholarship in my mind and he's instilled that in me really early on. In my um, in my career, what do you mean by uh, celebration? Even whilst I was a PhD student. What do you mean by celebration of scholarship? Um, Charles Sturt's a country university, largest largest inland university in Australia, but you know the campuses are spread out in fairly small country towns. And when you're in that sort of environment, you have very small faculty. We had 15 academics in the School of Human Movement Studies, mm-hmm. and to cover the the breadth of the human movement disciplines with 15 staff means that you are all very diverse, mm-hmm. uh, ranging from hard sciences, physiology, uh, biology, biomech, to much more um, liberal sciences and you know soci- sociology and social critical theory and yeah. pedagogy and so forth. So it was it was and and Frank managed to manage that the, those competing ideas in a very, very effective way. And what, what he opened my mind up to was always being receptive to the multiple disciplines that are out there investigating phenomena and what they bring to the discussion. So, And I think that's, um, that's what... what yeah, I, that's, it, was a, it was a quintessential point in my career, I think. Yeah, and that's what I've seen in you uh, that's kind of different than uh, a lot of the other researchers I know is that um, I guess you embrace... You embrace all areas. It's not that the other researchers don't, but you you often draw a lot of parallels between outside disciplines and, and the work that you do in physical education and health. Yeah, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think Frank is a big impact on that. The other thing, too, I think that impacts that is I, um, when, when you study, when you study, History, or I think military history. You know, some of the some of the texts that they they get you to read are very abstract. I mean, uh, I mean, I must have read Sun Tzu's Art of War fifteen times before I even started at the college, and and I, I read von Clausewitz, and um, I uh, I read I read much more beyond just the discipline that is physical education or someone that's on a on a on a, on a the flavor of the month, so to speak, because I think that there is a lot more knowledge out there that we we can draw parallels from, that we can make abstract connections from, and largely shortcut some of the some of the arguments that we're having in the space at the moment. I think people forget that education is a fairly young discipline um, in terms of academic research, and it spawns out of psychology, but it's it. it that the, the thinking that and the arguments that we get bogged down in so frequently have already been answered in other disciplines, and we can we can do ourselves a big favour by, by learning the lessons of those and um, translating them or overlaying them onto ours. So how, how do you? Tr- tr- I just want to take a time out. But how do you extrapolate and extract meaning? Like, is it is it a personal thing with you? You just take what resonates with you, or do you have a formula for extracting meaning from other disciplines or does it depend on what you're reading? So in general, what's your advice to people to begin to look outside their discipline and, and to extract meaning that they can um, not apply, but that, you know, just draw meaning from that, that it kind of is applicable to the work that they do in physical education and health. It's, it's, it's funny because for me, I, I can't, I can't actually put my finger on whether it's a conscious, a conscious effort. No, so I'm strapped with a problem. So I think I'll go and read some 16th century philosophy, or I'll go and read, you know, some some principle that came out of you know chemistry in the in the late 1900s. For me, it, it has never been a conscious effort to source a discipline to find the knowledge. It's a state of mind. 
It's the willingness to be open-minded about everything you see, everything you hear, everything you read. I could be watching the History Channel. I could be watching a, a documentary on you know the life of a bird on the Galapagos Islands. And there are people. I think. I think this is how I. I, I, the space I operate in is that whatever I'm consuming, whether it's written, visual, I'm moving, whatever it is in the moment, it's, it's making yourself open to what has this experience, what am I engaged in, and what is it teaching me? And I think, um, I think Einstein got this right. He said, you know, the most difficult activity or most difficult exercise is thinking, which is why so few people engage in it. And it 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 is a I can't say it's I can't say it it's it's anything deliberate on my part. It, I think I make I, the only thing I work really hard at is to be cognizant and aware of what's going on around me and what what I'm engaged in in the moment. And I seek answers beyond what they're trying to tell me. Right? Yeah. The conversation I have with my barista over the way he makes coffee in the morning, yeah. you know, may have may have deeper meaning than just me consuming the coffee. Uh, talking about the fermentation process of wine, which I'm very passionate about, has more meaning than what I get to consume at the end of the process. Yeah. It's the attention to detail. It's understanding how the you know, weather and soil and um, and the attention of the winemaker all come to come to play, and then you can think about you can draw really strong narratives and analogies behind. Well, what does that mean in my profession? What does that look like in teaching? What does that look like in the development, not just of a grape, but how does a human develop in a similar way? Um, and I'm, that's just a very vague example. I'm only bringing yeah, it up because there's a bottle again, of wine in front of me at the moment. I think that it goes down. To, um when filtered down to kind of the bare essence of it, it it really is being very cognizant and aware on a micro level of what you do day in and day out with your teaching. You know, it is an art, you know, and that's why I appreciate a lot of things outside the, the, the discipline of physical education and health as well. I draw a lot of inspiration on those ideas because they teach me a lot about somebody who's engaged with their craft and, and the passion that they have about it and what you can learn from that, that passion, you know, but what role, so you talk about thinking. So the big thing in physical activity, obviously, is keeping kids active for as long as possible. But you yourself just said uh, the powerful role that thinking can play in our lives. So what role does thinking have in PE? So those teachers that are very concerned about keeping kids physically active from the second they come in to the second they leave, how can they balance that think time? So what's your advice there? Well, without, without you trying to make a, turn this into a false dichotomy that you can be active and not thinking or whether the two are mutually exclusive is, I think is posed a question. I think, I think, um, the, if teachers trying to get kids for active as long as possible is totally legitimate. Um, it's how you get them to, or how you pl- get them to play out being, um, being cognitive, uh, operating in a cognitive space whilst they're moving or once they finish moving. I, I don't think it's a, bet, a matter of movement at the expense of thought. Yeah. I mean, you would, you'd have to agree with this, Andy, you're yeah. a runner. Uh, and I imagine you have some of your best ideas when you're mid-stride. Absolutely. Okay? Yeah. Um, and there's something very powerful to be said, and I, I'm the same when I swim laps or I'm sitting on the back of, on my surfboard, right? Uh, the world can be passing me by, but it's in those moments of of physical exertion that some clarity can also be achieved. Well, we actually, we actually know a little bit about this. I mean, the, the interesting thing about creative thought, and I know you used the sting clip earlier. I mean, there's been a lot of research around what inspires creativity. And it's funny they usually, you know, when you, you're trying to remember something and they say, well, don't think about it. It'll come back to you. Go yeah. and do something else. It'll come back to you. Yeah. Well, there is some, there is some evidence behind that. You know, you, that comes to you maybe when you turn your body and exert in a way that isn't directly 
trying to solve the problem. The other one is is when the mind becomes you know in a in a state of rest, so we actually aren't overloading it. Which and what I mean is, you probably notice that you'll be in the shower, you'll be sitting on the toilet, or you'll be just about to go to sleep. And this idea will pop into yeah. your head. Right? So this is, I suppose, this is the notion that concerns me a lot about the literature at the moment when they talk about physical activity and achievement in kids is that you know, the notion that you can just run them ragged and that's going to make them better thinkers, I think, is a is a really dangerous uh, a dangerous thing to draw out. Yeah. Uh, I think there will be there'll be there is some great thinking that can be inspired. There can all be also some great thinking that can be tested. People might be able to solve problems, and I do it. I actually run a workshop on this: solve a problem when you, they sit down and reflect it. But then you put the stresses of activity on them, so you increase their heart rate, their respiratory rate, the stress of competition, and then you get them to make those same rational decisions under stress. And what they find is that's a very difficult activity. Now, I didn't learn that from a textbook. I learned that from the military. Mm-hmm. Right? When you see your soldiers responding to what are for all intents and purposes, should a rational decision should lead to an optimal outcome. But when you put them under stress, when you put them um, in a precarious situation, that their decision-making becomes impaired. I think PE especially, we have a great opportunity to do that. Students that are great communicators in a, in a debate class, when you put them under pressure when they can't, when their respiratory rate is increased and their heart rate is increased and they have to think with their heart pumping in their ear. And it becomes a very different scenario. And we know that those things transpire all the time. And we're probably one of the few subject areas that can prepare children and individuals to actually deal with that effectively. I mean, that's just a, that's a great example of, you know, getting kids to practice skills in isolation alone with not entering other, any other variables into it. You know, just that oh, added yeah, element of, of, you know, changing up anything puts a cognitive strain on them that, that, requires them to develop the skill of thinking while being active in pressure situations, right? Yeah, and thinking to solve problems, but also thinking about, you know, their social interaction and the impact that has on that. I know for me this is something that's terrible. I, I'm I'm a terrible guy when I'm on the football field. <laughs> I turn into a, a complete tool. <laughs> and it's, it's not until after the game where I just okay, game's over I can leave it on the field and I can shake everyone's hand and have a bit of a joke about what's gone on but there is something about competition there is something about the heat of battle that inspires attributes of me that I'm not particularly proud of turns on the Dudley switch yeah it's (laughs) like that It, it does and and it's what's interesting for me as a reflective process is how can someone who professes so much about um, about the, the the social and personal capabilities that our subject area belong or can contribute to be such an asshole when it comes <laughs> to being a player himself on occasions. So I, it's interesting when I when I draw back through it in reflection, I sit down, talk to my wife about it. She says, "Do you hear yourself now? Yeah. Have you seen that?" Yeah. And it, it, and I am getting better with it, with age. I must admit. <laughs> well, speaking speaking of that, so I'd like to ask you, I guess. I don't want to put a particular go back in time a particular number of years. I'm not going to specify that that number of years going back, but how has your call to action, I guess personally and professionally changed over the last few years? Um I've become incredibly cynical, I think. I mean, my uh, I've I sort of prided myself and a lot of a lot of Academics who've gotten through the process of being a teacher first and then moving into the the academic pursuits of education have always struggled with this. Is and they always say, "I'm a teacher and I have the best interests of teachers." And I'm thinking of this from a teacher perspective, and then that gradually is eroded from their practice because academia actually doesn't want that. The the academy wants you to specialise in a very small field, very narrow field, and become as good as you possibly can in it, and then hope that impacts more widely. I actually think it's antithetical. I consider myself much more pragmatic, and my and I get I get a lot of criticism for it because I haven't 
narrowed my career to being a specialist in one very narrow field, whether it be, you know, a game sense or whether it be physical literacy or whether it be nutrition or whether it be activity or, or multi, whatever it is. I, because I think they're all relevant. Mm-hmm. So what I pride myself on and what I try and do is I don't have to be a classroom teacher anymore as much as I do enjoy it. I do get in, do as much teaching as I can when I have the opportunity. What I pride myself on is helping people like yourself solve their problems mm-hmm. and asking, getting them to ask the questions they need to think through to solve the problems they're confronted with. Now, I don't care where that takes me because what I find is that the journey of helping others solve the problems they're confronted with actually enriches my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that may be detrimental in classic that may be detrimental to my long-term career in academia, but really that doesn't matter. I get incredible satisfaction working with, and you've seen me do this, right? You've seen me work with, and I I hope a lot of people I've worked with see this interaction, is that I am really motivated by helping people solve the dilemmas that they're confronted with and showing them new ways to explore those those problems. So say more specifically about, so... In our case, and I've spoken about this before, um, you know, a lot of the work that I've done with provocations, I really tuned in and asked you some really specific questions that allowed you to help me identify research to better support the work I was doing with provocations through John Hattie's work and uh, through through other work. But um, that's an example of how you helped align evidence that supported the direction I was going with provocations and to challenge me uh, in a way as well. So, but say more about how teachers can become their own researchers, even if on a micro level, what's your advice to somebody listening to this um, in regards to first steps that they can take to become more aware of that, uh, the potential that exists with becoming their own researcher? Yeah, I, I mean, I, unfortunately, I think that teachers are the passive recipients of a flood of information and criticism on their practice, right? So anyone that's been teaching for the last 10 years will know that there's always the next person that has the you know, the silver bullet. This is a solution to your problems. You all sit through PD, mind-numbing PD, um, someone pushing a new educative agenda. I call it vending machine research, and a lot of it is. You know, there's usually a product or or some some expensive solution on the tail end of it. I think the first step, the first step for any teacher that's confronted with these issues is to really say, you know, how I use the word evidence a lot. People hear me say that a lot, but what it means is, is how much is what's been claimed can be linked to causality. If I do this, it will definitely lead to this or what's the likelihood it will lead to this outcome. And if you're not seeing it, if you try something new because someone said, you know, there's a, you know, this is a great approach and you're not seeing the effect that's been claimed, it it really well, I suppose this this is the way I got started too is well then why not? Um, what 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 doesn't this question answer? You know, what doesn't this solution that's been, you know, offered up um, solve for my class or my students and the unique context in which I'm teaching? And I think that's a real empowering point. And until we get back to this space in our in our educative systems, is understanding that the one of the best things we can do for teachers is give them the autonomy to make well-informed decisions about the students that are in front. Of because no one will know them better than that teacher. What I get really disenfranchised when I see blanket um, programs run out that haven't been tested fully um, and, and really built from and, – and good. this is just good empirical design starting with small pilot studies that grow out gradually and organically to the groups that connect with them as opposed to, you know, a, a department or an agency coming in saying we need to increase physical activity of kids and here's 24 schools and, you know, you know, they come in, they run the study for six months, they find statistical significance, which is a measure of probability, and they declare victory and walk off mm-hmm. and say, you're going to do it. And the, to me, that sort of 
that that bureaucratic approach to to educational reform I find incredibly frustrating. So it could be as simple as what? Let's say let's say teacher this teacher has difficulty, you know, he's not finding kids are engaged in, in his or her program. Uh, they try all these different things out. Some things work, some things don't. But their ultimate goal is to create um, more engagement in PE. This is what we hear all the time in, in PE. Kids are engaged. Well, what's the first thing they need to consider when striving to create more engagement in PE? What would that look like? So, uh, well, a little bit of ref- I would. If being the teacher, I would encourage you to say, well, what does work? Right? But rather than focus on what's not working, right, first, what are the things that are working in your program? What are the things that kids do connect with? Now, and maybe, and you may find this, is that when I try and teach skills, it's really, really hard. But when I play games, when I let the kids just play, they'll roll out the ball. They tend, there's a whole body of kids that sort of gravitate towards that and the groups sort of self-select and then you go well okay games tends to be an engaging thing for the children but that's then you ask yourself the next question the games on their own are not educative or they're not sufficient so i need to turn this this source of motivation into something that does work so you might do some research on game-centered approaches right you may find that you know why do group these groups of students gravitate to work with work towards work with each other and these ones don't. What what positive and negative effect is this? You know, if I've got these high-achieving students that are actively ostracising the low-achieving student, that to me says, well, this is a learning need here, right? I need my PE classes to be inclusive, so I should then start doing some research. With what I'm not really worried about engagement anymore. My new question is, what does inclusivity look like? Yes. Right, so I think I think it gives teachers some heart. In the first instance, don't focus on what's not working. Focus on what does, and then build out your questions from there. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. That's good advice because any teacher can look at what's working, right? Absolutely. Right. So that's that's an easy way to to start. It's funny that uh, when I first started. In academia, I would I would walk into staff rooms and and someone would come in and say, "Oh, I just had the I just taught a great lesson," and I said, "How do you know it was a great lesson?" Oh, the kids had so much fun. Yeah. And the same teacher would come in again, and I, I said, "Tell me about your lesson, but don't use the word fun in it." Yeah. And that was like, uh, uh, so their their entire sense of of efficacy was was derived around fun. Mm. And then when I asked them, well, what have they learned, right? So because a lot of things we learn aren't fun, right? And that's totally legitimate too. Um, and it, it can be challenging and, you know, the fun may be a byproduct of some other learned phenomenon. And you, that's I think that's really our job as teachers is to find those those challenges Um and you've seen me say this on Twitter, I, I'm a big advocate for physical activity being diverse, challenging, mm-hmm. and meaningful for yeah. kids until late adolescence. Yeah. Um, and if it's not doing those things, then I think um, we've got to ask some hard questions about the practice that we observe. Yeah, uh, one of the great things here, uh, coming here, the work that I do, so I'm working with music, visual arts, library, and PE. And the PE team here, uh, they're in a unique situation because they team teach throughout the entire year. Uh, we're in a pretty uh, safe community here. We're in a walled community. There's lots to do in the community. Um, and what they, they started to do is they started to, there's a skate park uh, about a kilometer from the school. Uh, what they started to do was uh, they, they have an individual pursuits unit but they wanted to test out the idea of doing half the unit uh, skateboarding, half the unit bicycling. So they rolled that out from grades two to five. So they did that last year. So they are doing the same thing this year. But my involvement with the, the unit and the teaching is I go in there and I talk to the kids. And I actually went on the skateboarding summative assessment, which was they brought all these kids to the university and had all these kids in grade five skateboarding down ramps at the university uh, Muslim girls covered on skateboards, you know, like, awesome. 
really cool stuff. So when I interviewed the um, the kids, and I interviewed a ton of kids, and I didn't ask them if it was just fun. I asked them to tell me their learning in the unit, tell me um, how much more confident they are in skateboarding and cycling, because a lot of these kids didn't even begin to get on a bicycle till they got here to this school, sure. right? So um, overwhelming number of kids felt very positive about the experience. They went home. They got their parents to buy bicycles for them. They're going to the skate park now. So we kind of want to take the program in a direction next year where they they do a six-week unit on skateboarding and a six-week unit on bicycling because we've had so much success with it up until this point. So I think it's for us, it's been using the community and what's available to the kids and then designing the program around that. There's a lot of yeah. yeah, a lot of net games here. There's tennis, there's ping pong, there's badminton. So really looking at the possibilities that exist for kids taking action outside of school. Um, oh, absolutely. And I mean there's I think I think you any the design of any quality physical education program connects kids to their immediate community. That's one step and I think and and, and for a lot of people that's about that forces them to challenge the DNA of their PA culture where they're told that they have to teach football, they have to teach baseball or netball or whatever. The second thing is I think that PA needs to do is, yes, it needs to connect kids to their community, but it also needs to build their empathy. Yeah. So I, I, what, what I like is... You know, I, my first study, well, both my studies actually, both my master's degree and my PhD were working with predominantly kids from East Asian subcontinent backgrounds. Um, a lot of them were from households that didn't value physical activity, especially for the girls. Um, and I, I partially see physical education as being a... Um, a social mediator. So actually putting kids in situations where they're, they're, they're challenged to understand the plight of others. Um, I had a very surreal experience on one of my first trips to Thailand. You mentioned earlier and, um, I played a lot of tennis and volleyball as a kid. And, uh, I remember playing Sepik de with some Thai kids. I must have been no older than 10 and they absolutely kicked my butt. And if anyone's ever seen that sport been played, it's absolutely an amazing athletic. Is feat. that kicking and the ball like over the bounce. kicking the ball yeah, over the yeah, net? The the ratten, so yeah, the, yeah. the cane ball, and they kick it over the net. And I hadn't played football too as a kid, so I just found it so fascinating. But I think I think what it, the other things the other thing physical education lets us do is it lets us explore uh, ways of knowing the body that that through our birthright or whatever we've actually been precluded from and for that I think it allows us to build a wider social and cultural empathy about um, the human plight yeah what do you have to say to teachers so just hearing you you know share that story and and my story about skateboarding and bicycling um, what do you have to say to teachers that say yes but the curriculum says that I have to teach you know, six weeks of net games, six week of six weeks of invasion games, six weeks of target games, when some of those units might not be relevant to the to the community that the kids live in. So how can the teachers find that balance between offering um, students authentic, genuine choices for action in the community and being mandated by the curriculums that they teach? So what what What's your advice there? Um, I don't know whether I have an answer for that. What I, what I would what I would tell what I would get people to consider is that the curriculum has a fairly limited shelf life, and it's usually a political instrument that's used to stamp some sort of cultural DNA on our children. There's a reason that you know if you attend school in Australia, you're going to learn sports like cricket and rugby, and you know they're they're, they're built into our cultural DNA and our identity and, you know, you know, politicians, for one of a better word, see them as being important. Same as you probably learned hockey in Canada. Yeah. What, what, I would, what I would argue is that the, the, one of the good things about most curriculum documents is they're pretty vague. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that 
that gives teachers and and I think teachers should feel empowered to play it fairly loose around how they interpret those. I, I would there, there's a difference between um, there's a difference between a chef and a cook. You know, a, a cook picks up a recipe and follows it verbatim and puts all the ingredients in and hopes that whatever comes out the end is what the picture looks like. The chef doesn't cook that way. You know? mm-hmm. The chef takes the ingredients, whatever they look like, and tests and adapts and adds a bit of salt and takes the ingredients away if it doesn't fit what they see the end product as being. All right, or they didn't get a particularly good ingredient, so they have to compensate with something else. I would, I would hope that as as an individual's teaching practice evolves, they see themselves more in the chef space than the, than the cook space. Yeah, tinkering and 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 learning as you go, and adding flavor where flavor needs to be added, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So this might be a nice time to segue over to the Sting audio clips. So uh, to give people some backstory. Uh, I have to give a little shout out to Ted Radio Hour. I reached out to them. I'm really inspired by their podcast and um, I love some of the audio clips from the Ted Radio Hour. So the host of the show, Guy Raz, who you can find on Twitter at Guy Raz, G-U-Y-R-A-Z. Uh, he uh, gave me permission to use the audio clips from the show. Uh, with each guest, I play certain audio clips and I get them to talk about what resonates the most with them. Uh, this is an audio clip um, from Sting's TED Talk. Uh, to give people uh, just a little more backstory into that TED Talk, uh, essentially Sting, you know, coming from the police, they pumped out one best hit after another for years and years and years and years. And then one day, um, you know, he's obviously dependent upon his levels of creativity and songwriting. Songwriting came so easy to him, but then one day it all ended. And he, as he describes, could not put pen to paper for eight years in uh, writing songs. He still practiced, he still performed, but that creative aspect of songwriting had eluded him for many years. So he had to do something called digression therapy. He went back into, you know, when he was an early songwriter, back into childhood, and he was drawn back to the community in which he escaped, that he wanted to escape. It was a shipyard uh the all the jobs in the community were based around the shipyard. He left his community as a young person and never went back. When he got himself back to that place, he remembered the stories of the people that he grew up with. And as he described, the songwriting came back to him uh, as if it was projectile vomiting. So he um, learned how to write songs in a very different way. So I'm going to play this audio clip for you. It's three minutes. And it actually ends with one of Sting's songs. Um, that is very different from uh, his early songs in his career, but uh, he essentially ended up uh, producing a Broadway play uh, based on this experience. So, Dean, I'm going to play the audio clip for you, and then I want you to just talk about what resonates with you and the work that you do, okay? Okay. I mean, so, so, so what, what did you do? I mean, how, how did you break out of it? Um, I thought, well, you know, maybe... My best work wasn't about me. <laughs> Maybe my best work was when I uh, started to ripen the voices of other people or, or um, put myself in someone else's shoes. I saw the world through their eyes and, and that kind of empathy is, is eventually what broke this uh, writer's block, we'll call it. Just, just by sort of stopping thinking about me, my ego and who I am and actually saying, oh, let's, let's give my voice to someone else. Well, they say, write what you know. If you can't write about yourself anymore, then who do you write about? So it's ironic that the, the landscape I'd worked so hard to escape from and the community that I'd more or less abandoned and exiled myself from should be the very landscape, the very community I would have to return to to find my missing muse. And as soon as I did that, as soon as I decided to honor the community I came from and tell their story, the songs started to come thick and fast. I've described it as a kind of projectile vomiting, a torrent of ideas, of characters, of voices, verses, couplets, entire songs almost formed whole, materialized in front of me as if they'd been 
bottled up inside me for many, many years. One of the first things I wrote was just a list of names of people I'd known. And they become characters in a kind of three-dimensional drama where they explain who they are, what they do, their hopes and their fears for the future. This is Jackie White. He's the foreman of the shipyard. My name is Jackie White, and I'm foreman of the yard, and you don't mess with Jackie on this quayside. I'm as hard as iron plate. We'll be tight, you, if you're late, when we have to push a boat out on the spring tide. Now, you could die and hope for heaven, but you need to work your shift, and I'd expect you all the baggers to the hilt. For if St. Peter at his gate were to ask you why you're late, why you tell him that you had to get a ship built. We built battleships and cruisers for Her Majesty the Queen. Super tankers for Onassis and all the classes in between. We built the greatest ship in tonnage what the world has ever seen. And the only life worth known is in the shipyard. Steel in the stockyard, iron in the soul would conjure up a ship where there used to be a hole. But we don't know what we'll do if this yard gets sold. For the only life worth known is in the shipyard. So again, I wanted to use that uh, audio clip and in particular play the sting, you know, that that last part that he sang to show what resulted in him going through that eight years and struggling with his creativity and then finding new meaning in the work that he's doing, which resulted in his Broadway play called The Shipyard. Um, so what resonates with you and the work that you do uh, in, in regards to the sting clip? <laughs> It's a fairly abstract leap, um, <laughs> Andy. So, um, a couple of things. I, I suppose that I um, I like I like the notion that people in in not me necessarily, but but at, at least um, I, I would like to think that our profession had the capacity to empathise with those who we serve, and too often I don't I don't see that. Um, I, I, I could probably name a number of people who I think do that particularly well, who who do see, see through the eyes of of teachers and students and and have a genuine have a genuine empathy to improve their livelihood, their experience, their plight more so than their than their own ego. Um, a bit like what what um, Sting says, I, from my experience, there's tremendous, there's tremendous power when you undertake that process. Um, I've seen, and I see a lot of people build their careers on the opposite. And I would say it's not the norm, um, in the profession, but I, I, I do see those who do undertake that, that existential journey being incredibly rewarded by the experience. Um, I, I like he he's, he he talks about this. I suppose this having to go back and escape for somehow escape what where he came from. And uh, I mean, my my childhood was um, it was probably lower middle class. I mean, my mother didn't work. My father was a soldier during that time. And nothing was really afforded to us. But I I, I never believed that that hard work alone got you out of trouble. Yeah. I was a fighter. I mean, I was raised that way, but, but it wasn't that, that there, there's got to be something to be said for just pure goddamn good luck yeah. with DNA. Yeah. Um, and I think there is something to be said for people who intellectualize their luck. Mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is it, it builds your capacity to empathize. I didn't pick myself up from my bootstraps because they're not my bootstraps. No. No, no one. I, I didn't. I didn't hard work my DNA that made me overcome people who said no to me. My father tells me tells a very good story when we moved to Queensland and um, and uh, the, I was he wanted me to go to high school. I wanted to go to high school. I was ready to go to high school, but Queensland required me to spend another year in primary school. And uh, I remember my dad having the interview with the principal saying, "Okay, you go out and you tell him he can't come to high school." Good luck with that. And then he walked off. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
very next day I was enrolled in high school. So yeah. <laughs> it was, um, the, but I, I don't attribute that to anything, anything other than, than luck. Um, and when, when you, when you intellectualize your good fortune, it allows you to do some really good things with that. And I've been incredibly lucky to, um, even in the face of when adversity has been fronted in my life, that for, that opportunity has presented itself to give me another option. And I think, like I said earlier in the podcast, is having having the the clarity to understand everything has a capacity to teach you something new. Mm-hmm. Everything, you, everyone will go through rubbish, and everything will everyone will have hard times. But the ability to remain in a, in, a, in a space where you're looking for what is this experience teaching me, and how am I going to apply it? It may not be a direct application that may be an abstract application is a really um it makes the journey it makes the life journey exciting and i kind of liked uh, sting's analogy you know he moved he tried to uh to some extent pull out characters in his in his in his life that that he could give power to through song yeah i'd i'd like to think and i'd like to think this i i, I suppose history will tell and and my wife will remind me of this. I, I, I'd like to think that I I would like to be remembered as someone who could empower teachers and not just teachers but empower our profession and what it does. And to get there to get there has been incredibly and continues to be an incredibly rocky road. I'm, I am fairly blunt. I am I do press people and I do ask questions that a lot of people don't like to hear, but the the um the the motives are sincere. If, yeah. if I can share that with people, yeah, they are. Absolutely. They generally come from a place of I, I want to share that struggle with you, and if I can lighten that boat and lighten that load, then that's a, that's a noble way to spend one's life. Yeah, and I think the idea of um, you ask the questions—it's ultimately the other people's choice whether or not they're going to answer them honestly, right? Um, I think what you were saying about intellectualizing, uh, in, in tech, uh, what did you say? In, uh, intellectualizing luck. And I think that puts a different perspective on self-efficacy as well. Right. Because like you said, you understand all the possibilities, you know, so you begin to empower your own narrative by looking at it like that. I think, I think, I think there's something incredibly arrogant. Um, and it allows us, it actually diminishes our capacity, capacity to empathize with others, our students, with our colleagues, with our, our community. When we go, I, what I have, I earned. Yeah. And that's the only narrative you subscribe to because what that does is, is it says, if you don't have as much as me, then you haven't worked hard enough. And it's a very sort of capitalist Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, uh, argument, and I find it, I find it dangerous. I, uh, yeah. I find it, I find it destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, I find it destructive to learning. But I find it more destructive to our societies. Yeah. Speaking of Donald Trump, we'll have a separate podcast with Aaron Beatley at some point uh, discussing his, his <laughs> views on that situation. But um, so. Uh, to end the podcast, I always put my guests in the hot seat, and I've, uh, I'm trying something completely new with you because I know you can handle it, uh, and you can handle the the new new hot seat experience, which is uh, Annie Vasley's speed round. So I'm going to give you five questions, and then your goal is to answer the question as uh, briefly, as succinctly as you can, and then I'll move on to the next question. You answer it. We go um, like that until the fifth question, at which point uh, you will then dig deep into any one of those questions that resonated the most with you and leave people with a a little tidbit of advice based on um, that question. So here we go. Are you ready? This this sounds about as much fun as an enema, but let's go. (laughs) Okay. Question number one. Do you prefer to learn in a slow-paced or fast-paced environment? Oh, definitely fast-paced. I like um, I like the challenge of immediacy. Okay. Number two, 
who was your biggest mentor, uh, f- we'll say, from the high school years and beyond? Who was your greatest mentor? Uh, I have a couple. Um, so uh, there's an there's a English academic. His name is um, David Baxter. And you probably, if you've read yeah. any of my papers, I've published a lot with a big fan of Bob Dylan. Introduced me to Bob Dylan, by the way. I'll okay. never forgive him for that. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that he was one that could draw similarities between music and movement and literature, he's he's just in, he opened my eyes to some really fabulous books too. The second one um, is is John Hattie, who I've worked closely with for um, a number of years too, who really opened my eyes to understanding. Uh, evidence, um, how it's attributed, and how to, yeah, to some extent, he, he, he's pushed me. He's been the he's been the person that's pushed even when I draw conclusions too early. So right, okay. Number three, your biggest frustration. <laughs> um, people. Okay, people. Uh, you want yeah, to leave it at that? I, my, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it's it's fun. I, 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 the, most afternoons, I'll, I'll come home from work and 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 I'll say and I'll say I hate people. <laughs> and <laughs> let me put some context on it, though. I mean, I find us as a species, I find us incredibly fortunate, but incredibly futile. I mean, we are we make the worst decisions with the worst evidence and and we're so destructive, so destructive. So I become impressed, I become incredibly frustrated with not individuals, but I come frustrated with us as a collective species. Okay. Number four, your most rewarding form of physical activity. Anything in the water. Anything, Anything in the water. Whether I, I could be swimming, surfing, sailing, Skiing, it really doesn't matter. Any anything that connects me with the ocean, especially, is yep. Okay, and the last one, number five. If someone was to write a book about you at the end of your career, what would the title of that book be? Um, oh, crikey! Um, maybe how to. Um, how to overcome insomnia? Excellent, by Dean Dudley. In five pages. <laughs> yeah. How to how to overcome your insomnia? A life story of Dean Dudley. <laughs> okay. Excellent, I love it. Because <laughs> I I, gar- I guarantee you, people would be asleep by page four. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Better than uh, sleep meds, right? Yeah. yeah, forget yeah, forget forget the drugs. Just yeah. uh, read my book. <laughs> okay, so now your job in closing is to pick one of those areas, and I'll remind you of what they were. Um, elaborate a little more than leave people with one piece of advice regarding um, whatever it was you said. So number one was slow paced or fast paced environment. Uh, how do you prefer to learn? Number two was uh, your biggest mentor. Number three. Your biggest frustration, number four, your most rewarding form of physical activity, and number five, the title of the book. So what do you have okay. for us? I'm going to go on the fourth one. I, I think what I, what I would like us to do, and given that this is a PE podcast, I would like us to think a lot more about the way we deliver PE that connects people to the planet we live on and how we interact with it. Um, you, you know, I've done a lot of work with the UN on, you know, this and I'm actually um, heading back there in um, January. But I think, I think one of, one of the things that we need to, as, 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 as a species we've evolved is we've, we've lost the connection, our wider biosphere. Mm-hmm. And I think physical, low, low, uh, what I think is, is that physical activity whether it be a run or a, or a swim or a, or a surf or whatever, is one of the few things that are left in our lives that connect us deeply with the planet. Um, and I would really like to see, I mean, one of the real tragedies I've seen is this massive erosion of outdoor experiential learning in physical education programs. There was a time when it was the cornerstone 
of what it is we did in in PE programs, and now it seems that you know in increasing litigious societies, it becomes an afterthought and it becomes an outsourced product. But I think for me, um, I would like kids to know there is that 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 their their movement and their and their lived physical experience connects them to to the planet in the same way every other creature is connected to it. Um, and that, for its own right, is worthy of exploration. Excellent advice to end the podcast. Uh, where can people find you on social media? I was about to say, they can find me in my office at the moment, drinking <laughs> yeah. a glass of red wine. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> social media, at Dean Dudley. Um, uh, and you can contact me. I'm currently... Um, in, at Macquarie University, so you can find me through a, a search on the Macquarie University website, www.mq.edu.au. Okay, I'll include that in the show notes. Thank you very much, and Merry Christmas to you and your family, and uh, I hope to catch up Thank with you. Thank you, my soon. friend. Yep. Uh, just stay on the line, and uh, I'm just going to sign off here. Thank you, everybody, for listening to uh, my Run Your Life podcast uh, episode with Dr. Dean Dudley from Macquarie University. I appreciate your time and energy, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.